0: just want to take a moment, I know it's Memorial Day weekend, tomorrow's Memorial Day, and just remember everyone who has served in the armed forces, who has sacrificed in whatever fashion uh, for our freedoms. And so let's just take a moment and pray and give thanks. Heavenly Father, we appreciate the freedoms that we are able to exercise in our country. And so much of that, Lord, has to do with the men and women who are willing to give of their very substance and serve and protect. And so, Lord, we lift them up to you now for those who are active. Lord, we pray for your protection upon them, your grace in their lives, Lord. And for those who have served already in whatever fashion, perhaps even who have given their lives, Lord, we give thanks to you. We know that they are in your hands, and we remember them and make much of them this day. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the first epistle of John, studying John's message of love. And I've called this series Love Unleashed because really that's John's intention. John's intention is for his readers to understand, to experience more fully the love that they have received from God the Father. Now, try to imagine what is going through the apostles' mind at this point, if you will. John had lived with Jesus Day in and day out for a period of three and a half years or so. Probably because John and Jesus were cousins biologically. John knew Jesus long before that. But John came to the awareness through his discipleship with Jesus Christ that Jesus was the Word, the Alpha. The Omega, the beginning and the end. He was the word who was with God in the beginning and who was God. Now try to imagine now some 50 to 60 years later, John writing in remembrance of those three and a half years and his experience with Jesus Christ personally but now also through the impetus of the Holy Spirit writing these words to his readers, trying to communicate to them the depth of the love that God had for them. And that's why in John's gospel, but also in all three of his epistles, John focuses very much on on the love of God. John called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think that, honestly, each one of us here this morning could make that same claim. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must understand, and it is my intention here this morning to communicate to you, that you are profoundly loved. You see, when God chose to save us, he could have very easily, because he is God, chosen to save us from sin and yet leave us just a part of creation. Because the resurrection will impact all of creation. It says in Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation groans looking forward to the revealing of the sons and the daughters, the children of God. You see, God chose in his salvation purpose for us, not just to save us from sin, not just to keep us from going to a devil's hell, but to actually make each one of us his children. To make us a part of his family uniquely. We aren't begotten of him as Jesus was, but we have been begotten born again by His Spirit into a new and a living hope. And it's a profound thought. And John, will begin in verse 28 of chapter 2, writes, And now, dear children, continue or abide in Him, in Jesus, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. So John begins to write, looking forward to the truth That Jesus is, in fact, coming again. We talked about that when we went through the series on the gospel. That the resurrection from the dead, the ascension into heaven, did not finish the gospel. Jesus is preparing a place for us. And he said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return and receive you unto myself. So Jesus is going to return. And John is reminding his readers of that. He's saying, continue in him. Walk with him. Remain his disciple so that you can be confident and unashamed when he returns. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So John talks here of the new birth, the fact that through the Spirit, when we are given that gift of faith, the grace of God is poured out upon us, we become children of God. And we're going to look at that just a little bit in depth this morning. You see, when John begins to, to talk about this, he's overwhelmed. Look what he says in verse 1. John is overwhelmed at the thought that he is called a child of God. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears at his second coming, when we are resurrected, when our bodies take on immortality, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. John is overwhelmed by this notion that he is called a child of God, and it is true of each one of us as well here this morning. And I wonder, does it overwhelm you? The thought of God's love that he has poured out upon you, that he wants you to be his child forever with him in heaven that he loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son to die upon a cross, to shed his blood so that you might be forgiven and enter in justified into his presence. It's an amazing thought. It's a it's a transforming thought. He has sanctified us. He has set us apart. Throughout the New Testament, the believers are called hagios. And hagios means a holy one or saint. And that is what we are. We are holy ones. We are saints. That is to say we have been set apart from the world, from the darkness of the world into his light. We are unique because of what he has done. He has called us holy ones. And you say, well, hold on, Greg. I don't feel like a holy one. I have a hard time thinking of myself as a saint. But God doesn't. He looks at you and he sees a holy one. He looks at you and he sees a saint. Because when he looks at me, he sees Jesus Christ. Because he has covered me with the robe of his righteousness. He has made me his child. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that I have become a partaker of the divine nature through the new birth. Wow. I am not looking he- out at a congregation of people who are just plowing along. I am looking out and a congregation of people who have been called out of the darkness into his marvelous light, who have been set apart from the world as his holy ones, his saints. You have been given special calling. This process of sanctification, he talks about it a little bit here in the first three verses. He says in verse 1 that the Father has lavished his love upon us and he has called us children of God. That is what is called positional sanctification. God says it, and it's done. So he looks at you, and he says, I'm calling you out of darkness into light. You are my child. You are set apart as a saint, as a holy one, as a hagios. We are the children of God. Now, it has not yet appeared what we are going to ultimately be. John says, but when he appears, when he returns and he calls us unto himself, we will be transformed. Our bodies, this mortality will put on immortality. This corruption will put on incorruption. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but this we do know. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So whatever it is we are to become, we will be fully, fully perfected. That is called perfected sanctification. There will come a day when you are set apart as a child of God, when the creation will no longer groan because you have been named by the Father and Jesus will have called you to himself. Perfected sanctification. And if you have that hope, John says, if you have the hope that God has called you his child and that one day, Jesus will return in the sky, and with the trump of God and the voice of the archangel, he will call up his church, and you will be transformed. If you have that hope this morning, then John says, you will purify yourselves. Verse 3, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is the process of practical sanctification or growing in this life to be like him you see that's the ultimate goal that we have it says in romans chapter 8 verse 29 that god's purpose for each one of us is to conform us to the image of christ and so the moment that you believed the moment that you expressed faith in jesus christ a transformation began in your life god began to Chip away at at your life, moving things aside that were sinful, that were of the flesh, that he did not think made you look like Jesus Christ. He was forming you into that perfect poema, that masterpiece he calls in Ephesians chapter 2, that he wants you to be. He wants you to be a masterpiece that looks just like Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we read more of this. And this is the work of this work of sanctification is a work of the, the Trinity. The Bible says that it is the Father's love that sanctifies us in Jude verse 1. And it says in John 17 17 that it is the word of God, the Son that sanctifies us, but also he says that it is the spirit of God that sanctifies us or sets us apart, and that's what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is what I want you to understand here this morning. Therefore, since we have such a hope, actually I'm going to step back and, and read a little bit more about this hope. If the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not steadily look at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory and what excuse me and if what was transitory came with glory how much greater is the glory of that which lasts so paul is making the point here that when moses went into the presence of the lord his face shone with glory because of the transference of god's glory to moses but that was under the covenant of the law that ultimately brought about condemnation Paul here is saying that the covenant of the Spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and in mine, given as a down payment for our future hope, is much more glorious. Now... Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away because ultimately that glory that was on Moses' face would diminish. And so Moses would cover his face with a veil so that the Israelites would not perceive that. But Paul says our glory is far different. Their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is that veil taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. Have you turned to the Lord in your life? Have you become a follower Of Jesus Christ? If you have, then that veil is taken away and the full glory, it says here, is revealed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So this process of practical sanctification, we have this hope that he is coming back and that we will be perfectly sanctified. But in the meantime, he is at work in our lives, perfecting us, moving in us by the Spirit transforming us into his image in ever-increasing glory. This is why it says in Hebrews that the Father disciplines us because he loves us, and he will not let us continue to live lives that are characterized by sin, and we're going to get into that here in just a moment. His purpose is, in calling us out of the darkness is so that we will walk in the light as he is in the light, so that our lives will be substantively different than they were before. That the power of the Spirit, the glory of the Spirit, will be evident to all in our lives, in the fashion in which we live. People ought to be able to look at us and say there's something different about him. About her. What is it? And it's the work of the Spirit, transforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. That is God's will, and God's will ultimately is never thwarted. And so you say to me here this morning, Oh, Greg, I'm struggling with this sin or with this fault. I don't feel like I am being sanctified. I don't sense that God is transforming me from glory to glory. Well, the simple fact of the matter is, yes, he is. Now, you may be making it a little bit harder, but God's at work in your life. I guarantee it. God is shaping you, fashioning you, forming you into the image of his son. Now, you can be a cooperative piece of stone, or you can be an uncooperative piece of stone. But God will ultimately make you look like Jesus. Now, in this process of practical sanctification, John begins to talk about what the child of God's relationship with the former experience with sin ought to be like. Because here we are, this morning. We are still in these bodies of flesh. We still have an experience within the context of a sin-stained world. Yes, we are positionally sanctified. Ultimately, we will be perfectly sanctified. We are in the process of being sanctified. What is our relationship with sin? John begins to tell us what that is. He says, everyone who breaks the law sins. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared, that would be Jesus, so that he might take away our sins. For in him is no sin. Now, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Little children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Now there's some definite meat here. You have to chew on this. This does not go down easy. This is doctrinally tough stuff. But John's point is simply this. When you have been born again of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit has come into you and you are a new creature in Christ, you have a new nature. And it says in uh, Ephesians 4.1 that we are to walk worthy of the calling whereunto we have been called. Each one of us has a calling. We have this new nature that God has created us in. We are, as I said, being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Because of that new nature, John's point here is that you will not, as a Christian, continue to allow sin to dominate your life. It simply cannot be. If you are truly born again of the Spirit, sin will no longer have control over you. Now, it's important to understand the Greek here. When it talks about continuing to sin and cannot go on sinning, the word there in the Greek is talking about a continuous or an ongoing or a perpetual action. So what he's saying here is, you are not going to be continually sinning. You are not going to be perpetually sinning. Sin is not going to be your master. Jesus came, it says, to take away our sin, to destroy the works of the devil. Why should we then continue in sin if Jesus, in fact, came to remove our sin and to destroy the devil's work? It ought not to be. We have a new power in us through the Holy Spirit through the love of the Father that has been lavished upon us, and through the truth of the word that has been given to us, that we might be pulled out of the slave market of sin and live as free men and women, free from the control of sin. Everyone else who does not have the Holy Spirit in them, who has not been born again, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, will be under the mastery of sin. Now, they may not sin all of the time. They may not sin in a grievous fashion. But ultimately, sin is their master. They cannot escape it. But there is a new pathway for those who have come under the auspices of grace. And as it said there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we are free. As Paul wrote to the Galatians, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free, to live as free men and women, free from the control of sin, free from rebellion against God, which ultimately that's what all sin is. All sin is rebellion against God. When Adam and Eve saw the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was pleasant to the eyes, pleasant to the taste desirable to make one wise. They were in rebellion. They desired something other than what God had promised. So we, as Christians, as new creatures in Christ, are no longer subject to sin. Do we sin? Yes, occasionally. Occasionally we will commit a sin. But are we under the domination of sin any longer? No, absolutely not. Our lives, as I said, should be transformed. We should look substantively different in the way in which we live than we did before Christ. Now, it's a process. This practical sanctification occurs over the entirety of our lives. Until I am resurrected from the dead, and this corruption puts on incorruption. I am going to have to, every day, rise up and put off the old man and put on Christ. I want to read for you out of Gal- or Colossians chapter 3, probably one of the best descriptions of this daily struggle that each one of us has. Paul says to the Colossians, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you have died and your life is now hidden with uh, Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. For because of these, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. You used to walk in these ways. In the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. Don't lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. There's this process. In sanctification, where we have to each day recognize that the love of God has been lavished upon us, that God's great love transcends, transcends the things that would enslave us. It is far more powerful than the power of sin. And so we can live as new creatures in Christ. We do not have to be uh, continuing in sin. Now, this was an important teaching because in uh, the early days of the church, there was a group that was beginning to rise up, and they were called the Gnostics. And essentially what the Gnostics said was that flesh was evil and spirit was good and that the flesh could never do anything that was worthy of God the flesh was ultimately corrupted. Now this was a problem and we'll we'll get into this next week a little bit. This was a problem because Jesus came in the flesh, didn't he? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so the gnostics thought well Jesus really didn't come in the flesh. He was just a phantom. He appeared to be in the flesh. And so this false doctrine began to arise. And the Gnostics would take this doctrine to its ultimate conclusion of that since flesh is evil, whatever you do in the flesh only glorifies God because that's how God fashioned it. And it ultimately grew into a doctrine that Paul addresses in in Romans chapter 6, where people believed that by sinning, they would glorify God. The more you sinned, the more grace you needed, and the greater God's glory was. And Paul said, that's a detestable doctrine. And that's what John is saying here as well. He is saying that we are in the flesh and that our flesh is going to be redeemed and that we can, in the flesh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, put on the new man and live a life that is glorifying to God. Why? Why? because of sanctification, because of the Father's love, because of the Son's word, because of the Spirit's strength. And that's available to each one of us, from the very youngest child in this room to the very oldest person. That power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to us. John begins or continues to say that this new nature is most profoundly made evident through love, through the exercise of love. And the term here, love, is the Greek word agape, which means sacrificial or selfless love. That's the kind of love he's talking about here. It's not the kind of love where you have an affectionate feeling towards someone. It's the kind of love that determines by an act of the will that this person regardless of their stature, regardless of their behavior, regardless of anything about them, is a worthy recipient of my love. That's the kind of love God has uh, given to us. Agape love. And that is what John is saying we ought to express towards one another. This is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Jesus actually said in John 15, he said, if the world hates you, understand this, it hated me first. So if the world hates us, it's because we are followers of the one that it first hated. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. You recall in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount elevated for the Christian the concept of what expectation God had of us. It wasn't just that we weren't to murder. That's what the law said, thou shalt not murder. But Jesus said, you will not be angry with your brother in your heart. And in fact, Jesus elevates it beyond that. He says, you are to love your enemies. You are to give to those who persecute you. Jesus raised the bar significantly. And that's what John is repeating here. This is how we know what love is. So you you say, okay, love, Old Commandment, it's in the Old Testament. Yes, but we found love in a new and a fresh way when Jesus Christ came. He demonstrated for us what true love actually looks like. Greater love has no man than this that he laid down his life for his friend. And that's what John repeats here. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech only, but with actions and in truth. So he gives us the gamut here of what love can look like. That from that very difficult, perhaps life-sacrificing action, of laying down our lives for the benefit of someone else, which, you know, in America, we don't really have to cross that bridge, do we? But around the world and throughout history, Christians, untold millions of them, literally have been martyred for love and for, for the brothers and the sisters of the faith. So, but John gives us... Uh, He doesn't give us an escape. You can't just say, well, I don't really, no one's calling on me to die for someone else. I don't really have to do that. He's saying, yeah, but if there's anyone around you who's a brother or sister who is in need, that most simple expression of love and of giving, if that opportunity presents itself to you and you resist it, then love doesn't abide in you. So we, from the very simplest act of giving a cup of water to someone who needs it, to the action of dying on behalf of someone whose life requires it. That's what love is. That's what Jesus demonstrated for us. And that's what John reiterates here is required of us. We must love one another. That was Jesus' new commandment. Love one another. This is how we know we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So you're thinking of this new ethic of love that God has given to us, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, my goodness. How can anyone live like that? Well, again, through the power of the Spirit, through, through the truth of the Word, all of those things, that's how we live that way. But we don't always live that way, do we? There are those opportunities where our brothers or sisters have been in need and we haven't helped them. We've had opportunity to serve others, and we have chosen not to. And it's very easy for the Spirit, or excuse me, for our flesh, rather, to condemn us to tell us, oh, I blew it again, I failed, I messed up. God must hate me. Now, remember, this is the same God who has lavished love upon you so that you might become the children of God. This is the same God who gave his only begotten son for you. The Bible says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you are free walking in the Spirit without any need to be condemned. That's what John is saying. This is how we know we belong to the truth. If our hearts condemn us, if for some reason we fall short of the the mark, we feel like we have not done what we ought to, God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has come that we might live life in freedom without the judgment of the law. It's a wonderful freedom that we have. This new commandment that we have been given to love one another. Yes, sometimes we don't love as we ought to. But God does not condemn us. God knows everything. When our hearts don't condemn us, when we are walking in love, awesome. That is beautiful. How good and how pleasant it is, the psalmist wrote, when brethren dwell together in unity. And it certainly is. But don't allow the enemy to accuse you, to get you into that place of condemnation, of thinking that you have fallen short of the mark, that God is somehow angry at you. That is not true. God loves you. He is delighted with you. Yes, he is fashioning you. He is shaping you. He will discipline you occasionally as needed. But ultimately, there is no condemnation. That's how you know you belong to the truth. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And from that belief comes a new birth. And through that new new birth comes new behavior, to love one another as he has commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit That he gave us. We have a new spirit. We are new creatures in Christ. There is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. He has called us to love. It's a wonderful blessing and opportunity. We don't have to be carrying around. The Ten Commandments with us. All of the time. We have this new power. That sanctifies us. That sets us apart. That allows us to Live together. It's extraordinary, and I'll finish with this. It's extraordinary that the church has survived for 2,000 years. It's a testament to the power of God. Because when you bring in people of such diverse backgrounds, in the early church, slave, slave owner, certainly at all times rich and poor, men and women, you know, highly uh, positioned and lowly positioned, when you bring that, that kind of a mix together and tell them that they have to live together in love, and they do that for 2,000 years, that's pretty good testimony that God is in the mix. And for us, that's the challenge here this morning. God loves you. God okay. has called you. He wants you to walk worthy of that calling. He wants that love that he has given you to express itself, not just in words, but in deed and in action. So look for those opportunities to love, to allow the light of Jesus to burst forth from you. And as you look, it will come. And as you, through faith, step out, God will do the work. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Our words cannot convey or even begin to express how much we are appreciative of your love. We love you because you first loved us. And you have given us your spirit. You have given us your word. You have definitely, definitely created new hearts in each one of us, Lord. And so my prayer for this congregation, Lord, is that our love truly would be unleashed. Not our love really, Lord, but your love through us, that agape love. And, Lord, through that love, may we transform our community. May we uh, just begin to be a blessing and a presence of Christ to each and every person that we meet in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand up. We're going to conclude with uh, the, the old hymn, Oh, 4,000 Tongues to Sing. May God richly bless each and every one of us as his children. Let's go forth from this place knowing that he has called us to a a greater and a deeper life than we ever thought possible through the power of his love. In Jesus' name, amen.